All right, well, good morning, Mercy House. We're so glad that you are joining us here this morning for worship. Uh, if this is your first time, special extra warm welcome to you. Um, I'm just going to jump into things. Last week, uh, we were looking at chapter 3 of Nehemiah, which is a pretty extensive list of names of people who were involved in the beginning stages of the building of the walls and the gates around Jerusalem. I uh, pointed out nine different observations that one could make as they're taking time to study um, and, and really meditate on that list of names. But here's one of the main takeaways that I think that you can take away. Uh, lists of names in the Bible help us remember that God is building a kingdom of very unique people, each with unique stories and unique giftings who are all vastly different from one another. And it also reminds us that each individual unique person's story matters to God. That's why their names and their professions and a little bit about their families are all included in the Bibles because God cares. In chapter 3, you see people who are priests, you see governors, you see merchants, you see goldsmiths and perfumers, you see wealthy people and poor people, you see men and women, and they're all being recognized and honored for their willingness to sacrifice their time and their resources as people who put themselves into harm's way to, to do the work that God was calling them to do. For us today, we're so far removed from the names on this list. But at some point, these names represented fathers and mothers. They, they were the uncles or the aunts. They were the neighbors or the friends. People whose sacrifice made it possible for them to be able to sit there safe within their walls in Jerusalem, worshiping God and experiencing fellowship with one another. Others before us, I think this is something that we can take away, others before us have labored and worked hard to help build God's kingdom. Many of them have sacrificed their time and their resources. They've bared up under really great and heavy burdens so that you can sit here today in this space and worship God and hear the gospel being preached. I think that's something that we shouldn't forget. The church didn't just start this morning. This has been going on for a long time. And a lot of energy and effort has been put into the groundwork that has been laid so you can be here, that I can be here today. And I think in part, that means that it's on us now to respond to the call, to build, and to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And that is not something that's just for our own sake, but for those who will come after us. So I think one of the things to remember as you come across a list of names in the Bibles... I want to encourage you to not skip over it, don't skim read it, but let it remind you that you are part of something much bigger uh, than just you sitting here in this moment. And then I encourage you to let it challenge you to think about what your legacy as a faithful follower of Christ looks like and what it looks like for you to possibly bless generations that come after you. That's what God would want you to think about and consider. Chapter 4, which is where we are today, is one of my favorite chapters in the whole book of Nehemiah because it gets very real. The story up until this point has been a bit of a fairy tale, to be quite honest, with a few minor speed bumps along the way. But for the Israelites who are engaged in the work of God, chapter 4 represents an absolute breaking point for them. But what it shows us is an is a breakthrough point in the work that they're working on. And you see that in this incredibly inspiring image of perseverance while trusting in God. Before I jump into verse 1, would you pray with me this morning? 
God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, which is pure and precious to us, God. I pray for those of us here who are at our breaking point, God. Those of us who have been unraveling, who maybe have been unraveled up until this point. Those of us who are in the thick of battle and our strength is failing or has failed. God, help us this morning to receive encouragement and hope from your word. Help us to see your great compassion. Help us to see you and to look to you as our defender, our protector, our true advocate in the things that we're going through. God, we love you and we thank you that you loved us first. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So you got some people who are heckling at the job site. In these opening verses, we see Sanballat and Tobiah harassing and mocking the people of God as they're at work. This isn't the first time that we've seen their names. As soon as Nehemiah calls his fellow brothers and sisters to the work in chapter 2, these two guys are on the scene. It says in chapter 2, verse 19, this is back a page or two, it says they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? The tone there is almost identical. Here in chapter 4, we get some more details, though. In Sambalot and Tobiah, they're resorting to some name-calling. And the scene, if you can imagine it, it's actually unfortunately easy to imagine. You've got two guys standing on the sideline just taunting people who are working. They're saying, well, what are these feeble and weak Jews doing? Do they actually think they're going to rebuild this entire wall? Like, what are they going to do? Do it in one day? And who do I see over there? A perfumer? Is that a goldsmith who's lifting up some rubble? What are they going to do? Take the burned rubble from their destroyed little city and make a cute wall around their city of God? They're being mocked. And it's almost comical at first because their words seem so weak. It's almost like they're just using some childish playground teasing. But the Israelites are heavily affected by it. And especially when you consider that some of these Israelites, most of them actually, are already out of their comfort zone. It's one thing if some no-name person is teasing you for something that you've been trained to do. You might be able to brush it off and say, well, I am the expert. I've been trained to do this. But many of these people are not leaning into their giftings. And we know this as we read chapter 3 right before this, that the building crew is full of goldsmiths and merchants and priests and just random people. It honestly is not the group of people that you would wisely consider for a major construction project. They literally don't know what they're doing. And so very likely they're insecure about it. And Sanballat and Tobiah, they pour it on to them. Remember, there are like families with children working alongside them in this hard work. And those children are being harassed and mocked at the same time. In chapter 3, verse 12, you see Shalom and his daughters doing work on the wall. It's a low moment for them. 
And so Tobiah turns to Sambalot. He scoffs. He says, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And some of us endure this type of heckling and this mocking on a regular basis. This is not new to us. Whether it be from friends or co-workers or classmates who just openly mock us and malign us. Maybe we're berated by our coaches or our professors or our mentors. Maybe it's a family member, a brother or a sister, an uncle or aunt who just constantly scoffs and teases us. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your mom or your dad who are constantly putting you down for the choices that you made, the decisions that you make. You're just not good enough. And you hear that over and over again. Maybe it's your significant other, your spouse, who just doesn't respect you, just tears you down with their words all the time. And we as Christians respond in obedience to live the lives that God has called us to do in the way that God calls us to live in. We will face adversity and opposition. And sometimes that adversity and opposition is because of the fact that people are just sinful and hurtful. But other times it is specifically because of our allegiance to Christ. And we're going to talk more about that later this morning. But for those of us who have experienced this type of verbal assault, it's never just one jab that does the damage. It's not just that one-off comment. That one-off comment you can shake off. You can kind of say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. They don't know what they're talking about. But it's the incessant, regular jeering that, comes, that it becomes torturous as it gets underneath our skin, as it seeps into our minds until we ourselves begin just succumbing in our hearts to the seeds of doubt, the ridicule that people are planting with their teasing. Tobiah's jab, it rings true for us today. A way that we can hear this today is, as Christians, look at them trying to build their life on Christ. If a fox climbs up on that, if they experience the slightest bit of resistance or just a tiny gust of hardship, they're going to blow over like a house that's made out of straw. And so how do we as Christians respond to adversity like this? Well, I think at least internally, what we do is we rely on the truths of Scripture that we've read and that we have learned. You see in the Bible, as Jesus is being heckled and tempted by Satan in the desert, what he does is he recites the truths of Scripture. And so in this case, if someone thinks that the life that we are building in Christ is weak and feeble and that a gust is going to blow it over, I think our minds ought to go to a place like Matthew 7, verse 24 and 25, where it says, Everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus speaking, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. There is no firmer foundation that you could build your house on than Christ. This is the word of God that we need to recite to ourselves, that we need to cling to when others think that the life that we're building on Christ is feeble and weak. So for those of us who are doing this, who are building our lives on Christ, we might face ridicule. We might face joking and mocking from the world, but we can say, like, bring on the foxes. You can send a whole army of foxes on this house. Bring on the storms. Let the oceans rage and, and, and the wind bat against this house because this house, which is founded on the rock, which is Christ, it will not fall. So that's what you 
turn to internally, the truths of Scripture. And we've seen Nehemiah respond like this before in a pretty epic fashion. The first time that Sambalat and Tobiah heckled them, Nehemiah responds to them in verse uh, 20 of chapter 2. He says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, Nehemiah responds to the mocking by declaring to them the truths that are found in Scripture, that God will see them through, and that any heckling is not going to have any effect on their work. And so you would expect him to do something similar here. Maybe he even gets a little bit more fiery. So if you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, what you're going to see later on is that Nehemiah isn't above rolling up his sleeves and roughing people up. He's not afraid to get into people's faces. So you've got to remember is Nehemiah is their leader. And I imagine that there's a moment and everyone's looking at Nehemiah. They're hearing the people who are doing the heckling and the harassing. And they're looking to Nehemiah and they're wondering, how is he going to respond to this? Maybe even secretly wanting him to puff up his chest a little bit and maybe stand up tall and forcibly stop these two men from mocking and harassing them and their, their children as they're working on the wall. But as a godly leader, look at what he does. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah's heart of constant prayer that we see from chapter 1, it takes over here. He calls out to God. He brings his burden to the Lord and he asks the Lord for help. For Nehemiah, this is not a therapeutic exercise. He, he's, he's praying as though this is a legitimate course of action. Actually, the most optimal course of action. That is far better than Nehemiah just taking matters into his own hands. There's a children's show called Daniel Tiger. I don't know if anyone here has seen it before, but Daniel Tiger's neighborhood is based off of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And in one of the episodes, uh, Daniel gets hurt, and he's taught a really important lesson through a song. All the important lessons are learned through a song in the show. But he learns this lesson to find a grown-up, someone who's able to help him. And the song is uniquely special because it's actually a Mr. Rogers original from the old television show that's been readapted, and it goes like this. You should see the lyrics on your screen. The title of the song is Grown Ups Are There. I'm not going to sing it to you. I'm just going to read it. It goes like this. Grown ups are there to take good care of you. So if you get hurt, here's what you do. Find a grown up. If you slip and fall down, grown ups are there. Or bump into a friend running around, grown-ups are there. If you need a bandage, grown-ups are there. Or an ice pack to help you manage, grown-ups are there. So, if you're hurt, go to a grown-up. They're there to take care of you. When you get hurt, find a grown-up to help you feel better. When you get hurt, find a grown-up to help you feel better. It's a nice song. And what the song is trying to teach and encourage children with is that they're not alone. That there is always someone there who can help them, a grown-up. That when they're hurt, they don't need to triage themselves. They don't need to take care of themselves. They don't need to just tough it out and say, I'm not hurt. 
They don't need to take matters into their own hands, but they can put the matters into the hands of an adult who can do a far better job at taking care of them and of the situation. See, Nehemiah, I think, understands this, and he didn't need a song to teach it to him. And perhaps it's because he's already tried going toe-to-toe with Sambalot and Tobiah, and they're still here, and it's only getting worse. But I think what Nehemiah communicates by going to God in prayer is exactly what this song communicates. But I think he would change the word slightly. He'd probably replace grown-ups with the word God, which I've taken the liberty to do. So take a look, and let's look at it again. The new title of the song is God is There. Not grown-ups, but God is There. God is there to take care of you. So if you get hurt, here's what you do. Find God. If you slip and fall down, God is there. Or bump into a friend running around, God is there. If you need a bandage, God is there. Or an ice pack to help you manage, God is there. And here's the important part. So if you're hurt, go to God. He's there to take care of you. When you get hurt, Go to God to help you feel better. When you're hurt, go to God to help you feel better. Nehemiah leads his people to go to God. And by doing this, he's pointing out that God is the greatest source of comfort and protection. He's modeling for them and for us how to face adversity and hardship. You go to God. You don't just go toe-to-toe with the people who are making life difficult for you. You go to God. Look at then what happens in verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, this is interesting. Kind of a quick recap. There's these verbal assaults that are launched, and Nehemiah takes time to pray that God would see them in their affliction and for God to take care of the hecklers. And then what they do is they put their nose back to the grindstone. They lower their shoulders back to the work, and they're actually really productive. They join together about two and a half miles of wall around the city. This wall gets up to 20 feet of the final 40 feet Because they found themselves having a mind to work. Or in other words, they were motivated to work. They were driven. They were inspired to work hard. It's interesting that the way that God answered Nehemiah's prayer regarding adversity was to advance the project. Which I think communicates that one of the ways that God shuts up his haters is to do the very thing that they say that God cannot do. And so he sustains his people, he supernaturally empowers them, and he motivates them to push on. One of the things that we can see is that it is an infuriating sight to Satan for a saint to persevere. Satan hates seeing that. What he wants more than anything else is for a Christian to just sit down on the sideline, to not run the race, to not fight the good fight, or to get so riled up and prideful and focus on squabbling rather than the mission that they've been sent on. But that's not what happens to Nehemiah and Israel. That's not what they do. They don't get into a yelling match with Tobiah and Sanballat. They don't cuss each other out. They don't just trade insults. What they do is they focus their attention and the energy on what mattered, which is the work that God had called them to do. But 
It doesn't silence their opposition. It actually makes things worse. Look at verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. The drive and success of the project was infuriating to Sambalat and Tobiah. And we see here that it's not just two guys on the sideline. They're representing the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. It becomes a pretty significant and imposing force that's starting to gather together. And what was just some sideline heckling and name-calling, it's spilling out into the parking lot. They're plotting to come together and to actually fight the people of Israel. At this point, it's important to see that there are two sides to this growing conflict. One side is rooted in what God is doing, and the other one is rooted in the personal interests and the personal gains of the people in this area. These two things, according to Sambalot and Tobiah, they cannot coexist. And we know this because they make it very clear from the beginning. As Nehemiah takes his first steps into Jerusalem, back in chapter 2, verse 9, this is what it says. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now something to remember is that Israel as a nation is completely decimated at this point. They were a poor they are a poor and vulnerable group of people who had been exploited and taken advantage of uh, in this area for the personal gain of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, who's someone else that's mentioned earlier, and the people uh, that, that they all represent. And Nehemiah doesn't go into the details, and perhaps it's because he doesn't have a lot of them himself, but his presence in this area to help the people of Israel, to call them to repentance, to a vision for rebuilding them as a nation, to restoring them, something that's greatly beneficial to them, is a huge threat to Sambalot and Tobiah. So that's where the animosity comes from. And it's important for us to see this because it helps us then apply this to our own lives because this text is not one that just encourages us to persevere in any endeavor. Like if we face any hardship, we can just persevere through it. That's not what this is doing. You cannot just make a generic motivational poster out of this text. What it's meant to address is that the adversity and the opposition that we face specifically as we align ourselves with God and his will. That's the story of Nehemiah. The story of Nehemiah is not a handbook for conflict resolution. It, it's a reminder that conflict happens when you are not aligned with God, when you're not on God's team and you're not doing what God is doing. And this happens outside the church, but it also can happen inside the church, inside God's community as well. It also communicates the reality that when you are aligned with God and what he's doing, when you are obedient to live out your life as a follower of Christ, there will be opposition. And sometimes that opposition, even when you're doing your best to very clearly love and serve other people like Nehemiah is doing, there will be adversity and opposition that escalates from name-calling even to physical violence. And that's what we see here. 
Jesus himself draws the same distinction for his disciples. Uh, This is from the Upper Room Discourse in uh, John chapter 15. We went through this this summer, and Mike Daly did a great job teaching on it. But um, I just want to read for you a a few verses. I think this is really helpful for us to see. In verse 18, this is Jesus speaking of um, chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the reality of adversity and opposition for the Christian is real. And the effects are real. But just because it's forecasted and that it's normal, it doesn't mean that it's easy to endure. And what you see is that it brings Israel to a breaking point. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Have you ever been at a place where you're just like, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. Maybe it happens when you're driving home from work. Maybe it happens when you're driving to work. Maybe it happens before that when you are just waking up in bed and thinking about swinging your legs over to the edge and you just think, I can't do this. It's a place of exhaustion. I think a place that goes well beyond grumbling and complaining. See, grumbling and complaining, when, you, when you're complaining about something, you have some energy to complain. But when you're at the place of complete defeat and despair and hopelessness, you don't even have the energy to complain about the things that are exhausting. You just are defeated. Some of the Israelites are at this place. They've been hard at it. They're working every day. They're diligent to the tasks at hand. Many of them making great sacrifices, back-breaking work, grueling on their bodies. And all the while being heckled and mocked as they're trying to accomplish this feat that's already monumental in nature. But that burden of every day working on this task is felt. And they aren't superhuman. And word starts going around, murmurs of discomfort and frustration and the grumbling and the doubt starts to spread throughout all of Israel like a sickness until they say, there's too much rubble. There's just too much. Can't do this by ourselves. Now, part of this is absolutely true. How right they are. Israel isn't just tired. They're not just discouraged. They're facing the reality that what God is calling them to do is impossible on their own. I think sooner or later, you learn that hype and optimism might be able to get projects off the ground, but it only lasts for so long. And so here, as Israel runs out of hype and optimism... And they face the reality of impossibility. It leads them to despair. Which I think means that they've lost faith in the God who called them to that work to begin with. And so we see that a form of opposition to the work that they're doing is actually coming from inside. Inside the walls of Jerusalem. I think some of us are feeling this despair this morning. 
And we feel this despair when we realize that the rubble that we're sitting in, the mess of our lives, the things that God is calling us to accomplish is greater than what we can humanly do. Which, here's the truth that you might need to hear this morning. It is too much for you. You can't do it. It might be that you need to accept this so that you can hit a breaking point and actually turn to God for help. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning is that you cannot do it by your own strength. Look, some of you are called to really big things. You you have big tasks that God is calling you to do. And a truth that you may have come face to face with is that it is just too big for you to handle. You are not smart enough. You are not... uh, You're not bright enough. You don't have enough time in the day. Like there's literally not enough days in the week for you to do the work that God is calling you to do. And it doesn't matter how deep you dig for that extra energy or how much coffee you drink. What God is calling you to accomplish with your life is impossible by your own power. Some of us here are hurting. Some of us have serious pain and trauma that they're working through. And the truth that you might be brushing up against is... Look, you cannot heal yourself. You cannot. It's not just about a matter of time. It's not about just trying harder or maybe journaling more or taking uh, more time to be mindful or taking care of yourself. Like your level of brokenness and the restoration that God is calling you to is impossible by your own power. If it wasn't, then you wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't need God. Why don't you go fix yourself? But that's not the case. Like some of us, Israel has lost their strength of will and their strength of heart. And they've come to, a, uh, to face the reality that there's just too much rubble for them to clear out. They cannot go on. They just, they can't. At the same time, you see in verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the Israelites, according to this, are not just in danger of being jumped on their way home from working on the wall, but there's credible threats against their lives. So you've got opposition on the inside. You've got this opposition from outside the walls. And for those of us who have hit walls of despair like this, there might be other people in our lives who are very well-meaning, who, who really care for us, but they might be encouraging us to just quit, to have more realistic expectations for ourselves. This is what we see the friends and the families of those who are working on the wall doing. In verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. The people that is referring to here are those who refused to come and answer the call to rebuild. And they are now beckoning those who did answer that call to leave the project, to come on home. As the work gets harder, as there are threats on their lives, as their strength is fading, morale is really low, they're being told by their brothers and sisters and parents and friends who they just need the support of, they're saying, just quit. It's not safe anymore. It's not worth it. It's not worth giving up your life for. Just pack it up and come on home. God's people are facing opposition from the outside with threats of violence. They're facing opposition from the inside with grumbling and doubt and faithlessness and exhaustion. And they're facing it near side. Those who are there to support them and love them and encourage them. Who are saying instead, essentially encouraging them to abandon the work that God had called them to do. 
I think for most people, this would be a perfectly reasonable time to wrap it all up. To say, hey, we've had a solid run. We tried. And sometimes all you can do is just try your best. It wasn't in the cards for us this time, Nehemiah. They just pack it up and go home. But that's not where Nehemiah's at. Nehemiah still has some strength in his legs. And more importantly, he's got some serious faith in God. Look at how he leads his people in verse 13. So, and what you see a lot in the book of Nehemiah is the word so. And what that indicates is Nehemiah responding to whatever hardship or adversity or opposition there is. This is what he does. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In other words, Nehemiah is saying, we're not going anywhere. We're not packing this up. We're going to dig in right here. And what he does is he attacks the opposition head on. So the outside opposition, if they want to come attack us, what he says is like, well, we're going to defend ourselves. And so what he does is he fortifies the weak spots with people who are armed and ready to protect themselves and their neighbors. Then what he does is he attacks the opposition both inside and near side by giving them a very simple speech. And in this very simple speech, he reminds them whose side they're on and who they're fighting for. Look again at verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah doesn't pamper them and give them false hope. He doesn't say, we can do this. We just need to believe in ourselves, guys. Like, just, we can do this. Just, let's just tighten up our boots a little bit and put in a little extra energy and zeal. He, and he doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, okay, you guys are just really tired. You're fatigued, so you're not seeing it clearly. Let's take a nice long three-day weekend and get some rest and come back on Tuesday and you'll see that the work is actually doable. That's not the case. This is an insurmountable task. That's not what Nehemiah does. What he does is he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Hear the compassion as he acknowledges that uh, the fear and the danger that is in their present circumstances. But then look at what he says. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Nehemiah essentially says, get your eyes off of yourselves and how weak you are. Get your eyes off of the enemy and how dangerous they are and look to the almighty God who is greater and more awesome than the enemy and greater than you. Brothers and sisters, we experience debilitating discouragement when we take our eyes off of God, when our vision is filled and our ears are filled only with the opposition, whether that's adversity outside, our own weaknesses and failures and faithlessness inside, or the discouragement from our friends and our family near side, if that's all that we see and hear, there is no hope for us to do the things that God has called us to do. And Nehemiah understands this reality, which is why he doesn't give them empty fluff. He directs their attention to solid ground, encouraging them with substance, which is only found when you're looking at God. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, remember God, but there's an exhortation to continue working and to continue fighting. 
He's appealing to both reason and emotion. To God, who has proven himself as mighty to save and faithful during their entire history as a nation. But then he also appeals to their hearts as he reminds them that it's not just about them that they continue fighting. When you hear the call to follow Jesus, to make disciples, to love and serve one another, to continue fighting the good fight, we make that appeal to you from the front here. It's not just about you. Of course, it benefits you as you respond to God's calling on your life to follow him. But God is also calling you and inviting you to bring more lost people into his kingdom. To bring further healing and restoration to those who don't know him, but also to those within the church that already do know him. This is the work that God has called you to do. And Nehemiah reminds Israel of God's greatness and his power, but he also calls them to keep showing up each day to the work. To keep lowering their shoulders to the work. This is in essence what it means to walk by faith. As we remember and trust God's goodness, his power, and his sovereignty. While at the same time, we are taking literal steps to follow him. I think we understand this very practically. Those of us who are Christians, like we ought to pray that God would help us on an exam or a test. But then we're actually going to go study and then we're actually going to go take that test. We pray that God would help us get a job, but then we go look for the jobs and we apply to different jobs and we interview for different jobs. We pray that God would restore broken relationships in our lives and then we go and have those hard conversations with those people. So when we face the impossible, what we do is we remember God, we pray that he would intercede, we remember why we're fighting and who we're fighting for, it goes well beyond just us, and then we engage ourselves with the good fight. This is how Nehemiah leads his people. This is what he calls the people of God to as they face opposition from the inside, from the outside, and from the near side. And look what happens. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half, my, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So if they looked like feeble Jews before, they certainly don't look like that now. Nehemiah's encouragement to remember God, to remember what they're fighting for, and the practical steps that he takes as a leader to create the defenses for the people, like it all works. They're reinvigorated. They go back to building the wall. And not only this, but they start pulling double duty. So here's the picture as it's being painted for us. All the people working directly on the wall, they're split in half. Half of them are working on the wall. The other half are carrying all the weapons and the armor. Okay? Then you have all of the leaders standing behind them as they're working on the wall. And they're creating basically a human shield guarding the workers with their own lives. So talk about leadership right there. 
There were those who were runners. They would carry the building materials. And they carried the materials in one arm and they had a sword in the other arm. That's how they worked. And the builders who were on the wall had a sword strapped to their side as they're hammering away and building this wall. Like Nehemiah, once again, he's an administrative genius. It's starting to continue to be shown to us how great of a leader and administrator he is. You've already seen him turn this mod podge of random people into a productive construction organization. And now he's morphed that group of people into a legitimate military fighting force able to defend a city. Like, you got to realize that this is an unreasonable task to ask someone to do. It is, impo- it is an impossible feat. This is not just something that you say, hey, would you mind putting together a construction crew to build a two and a half mile wall around the city that's 40 feet tall? Also, can you turn that same group into a military fighting force that can defend our city? That is an impossible task, but it gets accomplished, even in the face of adversity from inside and outside and near side. So Why? How were they able to do this? Was it Nehemiah's incredible leadership? I think in part, yeah. Is it the faithful and courageous perseverance of God's people? I think in part. But the main reason what Nehemiah was banking on, what he he was leaning on, was in verse 20. You see it right there. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. I don't know what impossible task God has called you to do. I don't know what the rubble is that God has called you to clear. I don't know what the walls he's called you to build or the gates he's called you to set. But what I do know is that if you continue in your own power and you lose sight of God in the work that you're doing, you will reach a breaking point. And as opposition comes, whether that's inside you, it's just doubt or exhaustion, whether that's outside of you through um, adversity and harassment or nearside you from the ones that you love with just discouragement or lack of support, this is what we do. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. One of the ways that we see Jesus in this passage is in the heart and the actions of Nehemiah. We've alluded to this before. Nehemiah is a type of Christ. And you might be wondering, where is Nehemiah in all of this? I know he's writing this. I know he's coordinating things. I see builders. I see runners. I even see some of the leaders making this human wall of defense. But what's Nehemiah actually doing? It's actually so brief where you see him in this passage that you may have missed it. In verse 18, read with me here. It says, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Okay, that's a clue. Skip down to verse 20. It says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. 
Nehemiah wasn't in his office up in the tower. He wasn't holed up in a bunker somewhere behind a desk. Nehemiah had the guy who played the trumpet with him at all times because Nehemiah was always where the danger was. He was always engaged in the toughest spots that would need rallying too. The most vulnerable spaces on the wall where people were the weakest. Nehemiah didn't just orchestrate the work. He was in the thick of it, willing to defend it with his own life. Does that sound like someone we know? That's Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. We've talked about this earlier in this book. Jesus is the man who left heaven and traveled to earth, just like Nehemiah left Persia and came to Jerusalem. And just like Nehemiah, who made Israel's problems his own problem, Jesus has made our problem of sin his own problem. And then when Jesus came, he didn't just sit in a safe spot in the temple, commanding things to be done and just ordering people around. Like He went into the crowds. He touched the lepers. He ate with the sinners. He washed people's feet. He was in the middle of the action where the people needed him the most, making himself fully vulnerable to the same dangers and hardships and struggles that his people were in. The mocking that happens at the beginning of this chapter truly foreshadows how the world mocked Jesus when he came to earth. I honestly was thinking and meditating on whether or not this is like a prophetic mocking because of how all of the answers to the questions that are mockingly asked are answered in Jesus. Look again at verse 2, the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 4. It says, And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, burned ones at that? Jesus takes that harassment onto himself. You can imagine it now. What is this feeble Jew doing? A carpenter out of Bethlehem? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If only they knew that this seemingly feeble Jew, Jesus, was the exalted king of the heavens. He was on a mission to save all of mankind. And that he would be immovable. That his face would be set like flint to accomplish the work that he was called to. Will he restore it for himself? Yes. Jesus will restore his people back to him and it will be for himself. He will delight and enjoy his people and the fellowship with them. And not only his people, but Jesus will bring total and complete restoration to everything that is broken. Will he sacrifice? Yeah, there was a sacrifice. Jesus Christ himself, the perfect sacrifice to fulfill and end all sacrifices. That is what communion celebrates. Then the last mocking jest, will he finish up in a day? Will he revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Jesus' nickname was the cornerstone. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And so as you take communion this morning, remember that Jesus is with you in the thick of it. That he has taken all of the mocking and all of the heckling onto himself. Remember that God fights for you. God does not lose. Jesus doesn't lose. And Mercy House, 
When you hear the trumpet sound, when you hear a brother or sister calling out for help, rally to them there. Fight for them. Love them. Serve them. Be there for them. Pray for them. Encourage them. And then remind them of the gospel, which is exactly what Nehemiah is doing for his people. And then carry the rubble with them. Build with them. Let's pray. Father, you are a good, good God who is powerful and mighty to save. You are trustworthy and true. You persevere through all hardship. You do not falter. You do not stumble. You are steady and immovable. And you accomplish your purposes. God, we confess that we often rely on ourselves and can only see our circumstances. And in that, we often recognize that what you're calling us to is too much, God. It's exhausting. We don't have it in us to take another step. And so I pray for those this morning who are at this place of defeat, God, that they wouldn't just muster the energy to take another step, but that they would look to you who is great and awesome and who fights their battles for them, God. God, I thank you for how this word has been so specifically encouraging to my heart this week. I pray for others, Lord. I pray for others as they take communion now, as they respond in worship for what you have done. I pray that they would find rest and peace in you, God. Even if it's for just the next minute or two, Lord, that they would be able to have a reprieve. I pray, Lord, that you would do the work in our lives that we would acknowledge the reality that what you've called us to and the consequence of our sin and our brokenness is too great for us to handle. We thank you that you have done the work. And Lord, we trust in it. We rely on it. And we love you, God. We thank you that you have first loved us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.